From Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. A few months ago, they said they didn't know who I was. Well, if you didn't know, now you know. Public safety is the fundamental right of every American. It is a civil right. And it is the principal responsibility of government. And we will have a safe Chicago. We will make Chicago the safest city in America. Obviously, we didn't win the election today, but I stand here with my head held high and a heart full of gratitude. And regardless of tonight's outcome, we fought the right fights and we put this city on a better path. No doubt about it. Well, voters said no to a second term for Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago. Meanwhile, the former Chicago school CEO and former gubernatorial candidate Paul Vallis was the top vote getter. He'll face the Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson in a runoff election next month. A huge political story in the state's largest city. We'll discuss that and more coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield, and along with us today, we've got Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former Director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. And Charlie's also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. And back with us, we have Heather Sharon from Chicago Tonight, the local politics reporter for that show. Heather, we appreciate you taking time to be with us. I know it's been a busy week. I'm happy to be here. Well, let's start then, Heather, with who won. I think we knew Paul Vallis had a good chance Tuesday because he'd been leading in most polls. But Brandon Johnson, I think for a lot of folks, that might have been a bit of a surprise. Uh, Your thoughts on that? I think it was for some people, because if you were looking at the polls, you know, both the reputable polls and the the not quite so reputable polls, he was consistently polling behind both Mayor Lightfoot and Jesus Chuy Garcia, um, the representative from Illinois' fourth district. A couple of things made the difference for Johnson, not the least of which is the strong and enthusiastic backing of the Chicago Teachers Union, as well as the Service Employees International Union. They had truly hundreds of volunteers on the ground on election day and before election day canvassing and making sure that the people they thought were most likely to vote for Johnson actually did vote for Johnson. And I also don't think it's uh, a coincidence that both Paul Vallis and, and Brandon Johnson were really on the you know, completely opposite sides of the debate over public safety and crime in Chicago. Paul Vallis has been very unabashed in pushing a law enforcement first approach, pledging to hire as many officers as quickly as possible. On the other side of the political spectrum, Brandon Johnson is really the only candidate in the race who said that he would not focus on hiring more police officers, but would instead invest in efforts to get at the root causes of crime. including the lack of affordable housing, the need for mental health care, and he would focus on reforming the Chicago Police Department, which of course remains under a court order to reform its operations. So it's going to be a very, very clear contrast between these two candidates for the next five weeks before the April 4th runoff. 
Well, of course, I believe uh, Vallis, we've said now, may have gotten up to 36% of the vote. What was Johnson again? What was his percentage? He was right at 20%. Okay. And so really, this is a reset. It's a runoff election. And I guess the question is whether or not Vallis can can basically not only keep that support that he's had and get those people back to the polls, but also can he somehow pick up some of these voters, some of these voters who uh, decided to go with somebody else and Johnson's doing the same thing. Is crime going to be the key issue as we go forward then? Is that going to be the one that everybody's watching? So I think so, but you know, it's impossible to tell what's going to happen in the next five weeks. And there's always the possibility that there's some major news story or some sort of, you know, scandal that breaks that really resets the context of the race. But as it stands now, this race is about election. And really, I think the fundamental question is, does the 36% of the vote earned during this first round of voting by Paul Vallis, does that represent his floor? or his ceiling? And I have the same question about Brandon Johnson. It, can he win? Can he grow that vote share by bringing over people who voted for the other progressive candidates in that first round, including Lori Lightfoot, including Chuy Garcia, as well as State Representative Cam Buckner? Or will they will the the bulk of those voters choose Vallis when they get to make another choice in the election? And that is fundamentally up for means this election is fundamentally up for grabs right now. Charlie, what do you think as far as uh, who who's able to pick up the votes that's needed here and uh, how some of those people who went a different way in the primary election now will think about this? Well, me sitting here like 200 miles away, I will give you my opinion for what it's worth. But if you look at it mathematically, Paul Vallis had 36% of the people who bothered to vote, if you will. Although there's what Heather, there's still tens of thousands of mail-in ballots that presumably could arrive and be counted. But it to get to 50% in the runoff, if he's at 36% and he can hold that 36%, he only needs to add another 14 that's basically mathematics and that would be him getting one of every three people who voted for somebody else brandon johnson other other hand with 20 percent, he's got to get like two out of three so on the face of it it looks like it's easier for vallis i think another question is going to be paul vallis lent himself or loaned himself 100 thousand one hundred dollars the other day taking the caps off so there are now no limits on what can be spent in the runoff and i'm guessing that there are probably more deep pocketed figures willing to give money to Dallas, who already had an edge in finances over johnson than there are who are available to fund brendan johnson on the other hand as heather pointed out johnson has a very efficient ground game going with members of the teachers union members of the service employees union who get out and work the precincts identify potential voters for their candidate and get those voters to the poll i'm not sure paul Vallis has a similar ground operation and that could be a big difference because looking at it overall only about what 32 percent of the eligible voters even bothered to vote so if I'm running a campaign for either of these guys, I try to identify who are those people who didn't vote. Those are the people we need to reach out to. And if we can get them to vote for us, uh, we got a clear shot at it. 
But I think, Heather, you're absolutely correct. It's really too early to make any predictions. You can sit here as we're doing and say, well, here are some of the elements that could factor into it. But in the end, uh, it's still anybody's ball game. Yeah, Heather, you also told me before the show that uh, early voting will be allowed in this runoff. That does occur, but it's a really tight window. So it is going to be a lot about a lot more about getting the ground game together, getting people to the polls, uh, and it's going to really be in a condensed schedule. It, it absolutely is. It is a, you know, if the first round of voting was a marathon that started all the way back last summer, this is a 40-meter 40, 40 dash uh, with your legs pumping and lungs heaving to the, the finish line. Uh, and there's very little room for error. And which is why you saw both candidates waste no time in coming out swinging. In fact, Johnson used his victory speech to um, cast Paul Vallis as somebody who has, you know, hurt Chicago school children and hurt Chicagoans for decades. And you've seen Paul Vallis spend the first days after his first place finish really focus on, on endorsements. We saw Jesse White, the former Illinois Secretary of State, perhaps the most beloved public official in Illinois history since Abraham Lincoln uh, endorsed Paul Vallis. And he is going to continue to sort of show that that he is the choice um, by people who Illinois voters know and respect and feel comfortable with. Well, Johnson is appealing to voters who want a change and want a break from the system as it has been constituted for most of my lifetime. Yeah, Charlie, does Jesse White, I mean, if there's going to be an endorsement, that's probably the one to get. Does it help Vallis? I mean, I guess it doesn't hurt him. Yeah, I would think it, it would help Vallis. And as Heather said, Jesse is a beloved figure. I would argue he's in his time, he's probably more beloved than Abraham Lincoln was back in his day. <laughs> uh, who would it move? Well, Willie Wilson, I believe, had what, like 9%, 10%? They Closer tended to 8%, to be, I think, yeah. Okay. They tended to be more conservative, probably older. People who would relate to Jesse White, who also is older, obviously. He's actually even older than I am, believe it or not. And so here's this respected figure who's telling folks, here's the guy you should vote for. Now, that's not going to have any traction with younger people. But on the other hand, the early... Uh, analysis suggests that older people voted in higher percentages than the younger folks. And so I think that may have an impact. Now, if Chuy Garcia were to endorse Johnson, I think that would help Johnson, particularly in the in the uh, Latino areas. In fact, and Heather, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it struck me that this whole runoff deal or the, the, the whole primary was a missed opportunity of sort for the progressive wings rather than unite and put all their weight behind one candidate, they kind of went two different ways with Chewy and with Johnson. Had they been able to coordinate their forces early on, the outcome might have been different. And we could have had Johnson as the front runner and Johnson and Vallis in the in the runoff. Now, one of the things that didn't particularly surprise me, and I doubt that it surprised anybody else who follows this stuff closely on the ground in the state, was that Lori Lightfoot didn't make it. And some of the national stories that I saw, it was like, oh my God, can you believe this? Lori Lightfoot didn't make it. And I'm thinking, well, if you've been paying attention for the last, what, six months, year, whatever, 
is pretty clear that Lori Lightfoot had a tough road to hoe and probably was not going to make it. So that, in my mind, is the least surprising of all the results. So, Heather, what happened there? What happened with Lori Lightfoot? I mean, she had the power of incumbency. She was sort of brought into office, swept into office as a reformer last time, and here she's not able to get a second term. Yeah. So I think there were really two things that prevented her from winning a second term. One, I I cannot understate just the trauma and the the just you know a, a complete rending of the of the city's social fabric because of the COVID nineteen pandemic. And for better or for worse, she was in charge during the pandemic. And unfortunately, mayors often wear the jacket for things that they have absolutely no control over. And that was certainly part of it. But the second part was. Was, is that, as you said, she was elected overwhelmingly after campaigning as a progressive. And nearly from the moment she took office in May 2020 or 2019, she did not govern as a progressive. She um, opposed plans for an elected school board after campaigning on plans for an elected school board. She opposed the police oversight board proposal that she helped craft as a candidate. She opposed efforts to raise real estate transfer taxes to generate funds to address homelessness and to help unhoused Chicagoans. Over and over again, we saw her take progressive positions that she had in it during the campaign and do something completely different as mayor, which meant that you had progressive groups angry pretty much starting in June 2019, spoiling for this fight in February 2023. And, and Charlie makes a good point about the progressive community not being united in this first round of voting, but it was not for lack of trying by Johnson supporters. Um, they had been lining up behind Brandon Johnson for more than a year before this election. And that was why you saw the Chicago Teachers Union endorse him before he even officially got into the race, why you saw Service Employees International Union follow very quickly once he did get into the race. And that effort was really thwarted by Jesus Chuy Garcia's late breaking decision to get into the race after he won another term in Congress. And, you know, there are no doubt significant conversations going on now behind the scenes to try to essentially have a do-over, to try to unite the progressive community behind Johnson, which was what everyone really thought it was going to take to unseat Lori Lightfoot. Now the, the target, of course, is Paul Vallis, who was really one of only two candidates in the first round who did not campaign as some flavor of progressive, him and Willie Wilson. And I think that no one should be surprised if Willie Wilson does endorse Paul Vallis. I think the question is, will his primarily Black base of voters listen to him, or will they vote for Brandon Johnson, who you know would be the you know the third black man to serve as mayor of Chicago and the second black man to be elected? Yeah, and Charlie Vallis is being portrayed by his opponents, at least, and those that don't want him to be elected, uh, primarily almost as a Republican, even though he's got a long history as a Democrat. Yeah, and I think that that's based more on the fact that he's. Uh, was the candidate endorsed by the, uh, the the police union? He also appeared at at some events for uh, put on by right wing organizations. But on the other hand, you can't say he's a true Republican, at least in today's version of what a Republican is. 
because he's always been very adamant that he's pro-choice and he's from my time dealing with him this goes back a long way he's always been a, a policy wonk more than anything else and there was a lot of unhappiness with the way he ran Chicago schools, particularly from the teachers union, because he was a big champion of going to charter schools. Uh, and people suspected that he wanted to basically privatize education. And so there's a long history there. And I think, as I said earlier, it's probably going to uh, end up being who can get their people to the polls. And also going to be interested to see what kind of late-breaking opposition research will come out and be highlighted in attack commercials against either man. And again, Vallis would seem to be, what would you say, more vulnerable on that point. The, the fact that there were on his, uh, I believe it was on his Twitter account, there were likes for some very reprehensible tweets. Was it his Twitter or was it Facebook, Heather? I don't recall. It was his Twitter account. Twitter, yeah. And his yeah. explanation was, well, other people had access to it. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not sure if I were a public figure, I would want to have my Twitter account available to whoever wants to use it. I would be worried about that. Yeah, he has to run, I guess we would, you know, we often say this about politicians, you run to the left or the right in a primary and then you run more to the middle in a general election. Is that what Vallis has to do here? Does he have to sort of show progressive credentials to some extent here in the next few weeks? I think he does. And I think we saw him do that during his victory speech, um, talking about how he was a lifelong Democrat and um, invoking the memory of his close working relationship and friendship with Don Clark Netsch, um, a longtime Democratic leader in the state house. And he also talked that how he was one of the first people to campaign for same-sex marriage um, back in the early 2000s, and that he says he is fully pro-choice and pro-abortion. That's what he he is trying to signal to Democrats that he is one of them. The, the issue is not only his seeking and accepting of the um, endorsement of the Fraternal Order of Police, but also the fact that many of his positions when it comes to schools, and of course he spent most of his career leading school, dis school districts, is closer to the center of the Republican Party than the Democratic Party. He's the only candidate in the in the, the race for mayor who would lift the limits on charter expansion in Chicago. He also favors vouchers, which would give parents tax dollars to take and then use at private schools. And, you know, that is going to be heavily litigated because that is truly anathema to the Chicago Teachers Union and has been for decades. But that position has really been embraced by the mainstream of the Democratic Party, because unlike, you know, President Bill Clinton or President Barack Obama, you do not hear somebody like Joe Biden or Kamala Harris endorsing the charter school movement. Um, that makes Paul Vallis a, a, an outlier on that issue. And Chicago is always is is you know, not only consumed with crime, but also consumed with worries about the school district, which, of course, is facing a fiscal cliff after the COVID-19 relief money runs out. And there are a number of schools that have shrunk significantly in enrollment and may be on the verge of having to be closed by officials. So the next mayor will have a lot, a lot on on his plate uh, with the schools and as well as crime. Yeah, you're making it sound as though a job 
most people probably wouldn't want, at least in the next four years, because there's going to be a lot of hard decisions that have to be made. Uh, Is it likely that we could see another one-term mayor because of some maybe tough decisions that might prove to be very unpopular? Oh, that's it's very possible. I think a lot about how when Mayor Rahm Emanuel shocked everybody and said he would not run for a third term, he said that it was the job of a lifetime, but not a job for a lifetime. And I think Chicago residents and voters are sort of coming to grips with the fact that we will never again see two mayors serve for more than 20 years as Richard J. Daley and Richard M. Daley did. And what that means for Chicago politics, I think, is very much in flux. Yeah, Charlie, you agree with that? This is not going to be a a career uh, in the mayor's office necessarily for anybody going forward? Yeah, I would be very surprised if we ever see history repeat itself like we did uh, with Richard J. and Richard M. That was an entirely different time when the Democratic machine basically controlled who was going to be mayor and the dailies had control of the machine. And it was a whole different operation with the patronage, with the firm ward organizations, with the, the what would you say, kind of do nothing city jobs and county jobs where your basic role, you may have a title that you work for this agency of county government, but your real responsibility is to turn out the democratic vote in your precinct. And that's oh, all changed. Yes, and absolutely. Without that, I don't think you're going to have another like lifetime mayor. Of course, I could be wrong. What do I know? You know. <laughs> well, Charlie, for people that aren't in Chicago, we have a lot of listeners who are based uh, what you would consider downstate or even in the suburban areas. So this election doesn't matter maybe as much to them as it would to somebody living in the city. But why is it important? Why is it something that people maybe in southern Illinois should be paying attention to? Well, I would argue that because Chicago and the Chicago region is the economic engine that drives the entire state. Uh, Studies and analysis have shown that basically the people in Chicago, Cook County, the metro region, subsidize the rest of the state. Now, people in southern Illinois like to argue, we don't get our fair share. It all goes to Chicago. The data does not support that. And so were Chicago not part of Illinois, Illinois would be, what would you, it would be like uh, Western Indiana, Eastern Iowa, Northern Kentucky. In other words, it would be not a very financially healthy area. So, yeah, and I think Governor uh, Pritzker was asked the other day if he was going to endorse either Vallis or Johnson. And he said he wouldn't be endorsing a candidate, at least not yet. And he, pointed out he that he he's a Chicago voter, obviously. He lives in Chicago. He'd be listening and watching intently. And then he, he had this quote, the governor and the mayor of the city of Chicago have to be able to work together. We saw for years, I think, under Rahm Emanuel and Bruce Rauner, where they didn't, and that wasn't good for the state or for the city of Chicago. I keep that in mind every day when I think about what I say, what I do, what I endorse. How is that relationship affected by the things I do? And I hope they'll keep that in mind as well. So his his idea is that Chicago is important and you have to be able to work with all parts of the state to get things done. And just the other day, the, the governor announced 
awards for basically park districts uh, around the state. A pretty decent chunk of it went to park districts, forest preserve districts outside Chicago and Cook County. The notion that we're all in this together and for the state to do well, Chicago has to do well, and so does downstate. Well, of course, we're going to be watching this election over the uh, next few weeks and see what happens now that uh, Johnson and Vallis are going to be squaring off. But Heather, as somebody who really reports on this, follows it really closely, what are you going to be paying attention to? What are you looking for over the next few weeks? Well, I'm really looking for um, where Black elected officials go. So um, I will be watching Alderman Jason Irvin very closely. He's the he's the chair of the Black Caucus, and he was really a crucial ally for Mayor Lori Lightfoot. So his endorsement, I think, could bring um, significant sort of momentum to either either candidate. And I'm also looking for Vallis to see if he's making in roads by bringing sort of moderate progressives over to his camp. And I think Johnson faces much, much the same uh, challenge. He has to convince people that despite his very close ties to the Chicago's teachers union, he can be a mayor for all of Chicago. Um, and he's facing a little bit of concern from the business community because of his economic proposals do seek to tax wealthy corporations. So both candidates have, have real challenges. They don't have a whole lot of time to address those challenges. And it's going to be truly just one of those fascinating elections that I think we'll look back on and see as an inflection point in Chicago's history. Let's go now to our notes from the field. And uh, Heather, we'll start with you. Well, so we really got an interesting look at who the candidates are um, as people in the way that they staged their victory celebrations. So the the talk of the town here has really been just the the wonderful mariachi bands that played Jesus Chuy Garcia's um, what he hoped would be his victory party, but it it but did not turn out that way. He would have been Chicago's first Latino mayor, and he was certainly proud of that sort of attempt. And I think that it will be um, a big task for both Johnson and Vallis to attract those Latino voters. It's quite possible that the the path to the fifth floor runs through neighborhoods like Pilsen and Little Village. And I will be very interesting to see how soon uh, we see Johnson and or Vallis appearing alongside mariachi bands uh, of their very own. <laughs> okay, and Charlie. Well, we've completed another month of the fiscal year. And the flash index compiled by Professor Gertz at the U of I's Institute of Government and Public Affairs shows that in February, the index increased to 103.4 from 103.1 in January. So the Illinois economy is still growing moderately, what the professor said, and what has become a repetitious summary over the last six months, Illinois and national economies still provide no clear signals of whether a soft landing or a modest recession is in store later this year. He said, in fact, a third possibility has suggested one of no landing at all with continued modest growth. And then the Commission on Government Forecasting and Accountability put out its rack up and said that for the first two thirds of this fiscal year, general funds base revenues are ahead of last year's pace by $2.2 billion. 
And if you include the revenue that we got from the ARPA, the, the federal aid reimbursement funds, growth increased to $2.5 billion. And the commission also pointed out on March 7th, which is next week, the commission will be releasing its revised outlook for FY23, our current fiscal year, and its initial estimates for FY2024. Okay, well, we'll talk more about that then. And that's all the time we have for this episode of State Week. Our panel included Charlie Wheeler and Chicago Tonight's Heather Sharon. You can get a podcast of our show at nprillinois.org through the NPR One app or iTunes. Just look for State Week. And don't forget to join us next time. I'm Sean Crawford. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.